Hello, my name is Adam Eason, and welcome to episode two of Hypnosis Weekly. Yes, hello, and a thoroughly warm welcome, hypnosis fans. I mean, I say warm welcome because we're in the midst of a heat wave here in the south coast of England. We have a jam-packed show lined up for you today. In a short while, I'll be sharing with you an interview with one of Head Hacking founders, Mr. Kev Sheldrake. I'll be asking him a bunch of questions about his approach before today's discussion which is about hypnotic suggestibility. As usual, that discussion really presupposes that those of you listening have some knowledge of hypnosis theory. Then I'll be taking a glance at some recent stories in the media where hypnosis has featured. I'm going to offer up some personal subjective commentary on the way hypnosis is not just portrayed in the media, but I'll also be commenting on some of the content of those stories. We'll round things off with the hypnosis factoid of the week before I then bid you adieu for another week. This podcast is something that I want to encompass the feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate, as well as doing its best to inform and educate. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback, do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made in the discussions along with related links are posted at each episode on the Hypnosis Weekly website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. That's hypnosisweekly with a hyphen in the middle, .com. You can add your thoughts, comments and make any suggestions there too. So, First of all today, this week's interview. I first met Kev Sheldrake a few years ago when I spoke at the Change Phenomena Conference for the first time. We had a great deal in common, I found and I thought, and, uh, and we enjoyed a great many discussions. Uh, I was taken aback by the fact that his company worked with magicians, taught street hypnosis and performance aspects of hypnosis, yet he still somehow managed to adhere to really credible evidence-backed principles in his approach. Because surely those things are not supposed to go together, let alone be married up so nicely. The more times I met him, the more I liked him, and so I was absolutely delighted that Kev agreed to come and be part of this podcast at such an easy, uh, early, <laughs> easy, what am I talking about? Such an early stage. Here we go then, that interview with Kev Sheldrake. Well, this week I am, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by the one and only Kev Sheldrake, uh, co-founder of Head Hacking, as I mentioned before, the phenomenal school teaching impromptu hypnosis all around the world. And they also to produce uh, very, very high quality DVD training products and host an annual hypnosis conference, Change Phenomena. Now, even though I was aware of the work of uh, head hacking prior to it, it was really through my own involvement with the Change Phenomena conference that I got to meet and know Anthony and Kev. Um, over the past few years, some of my discussions with Kev, as I was mentioning earlier, have been really instrumental in the way that I work. 
uh, my own business's approach to online sales of hypnosis audio in recent years was absolutely revolutionized following um, 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 a really brutally honest conversation I had with Kev. Um, most importantly to me, though, uh, the reason I really wanted to get Kev here on this poor podcast um, is because not only of his incredible knowledge, but also because of the way head hacking embraces diversity and somehow manages to transcend the, the conflict that the diversity of our field sometimes tends to generate. Um, I'm hoping to explore a lot more of Kev's approach and background today. But firstly, Kev Sheldrake, a warm welcome to you. Hello there. Hi, Adam. Great. How are you doing? Yeah, really, really good. I'm delighted to have you here. Now, I know that I know a, a, a fair bit about this, um, but just for, for those tuning in and those listening, um, just tell us a little bit, how, how did you get into this field? Because uh, it, it seems, you know, I know a bit about your background and some of it seems like an unlikely marriage, some of your background. Um, um, can you tell us a bit, what, what is your background, how you arrived at where you are now? Yeah, sure. Um, it's a bit of a convoluted path. Uh, as a kid, I was into computers and uh, mathematics and technical subjects like that, sort of kind of quite a world away from uh, hypnosis and or what I would have thought of hypnosis at the time, I guess. Yeah. Um, at university, I did a technical degree. It was a computer science based degree. I left that to join uh, what eventually became British Aerospace and uh, I built... Um, sort of prototypes of military computer systems which had high kind of security requirements for make, allowing certain people to see things and other people not to be able to see those things. Um, and uh, while, while I was sort of building and showing these things off at exhibitions, I, I, I was really lucky. I got to travel around the world with this sort of job, meet lots of crazy people in lots of weird places. And um, around that time, Darren Brown was on the TV yeah, uh, with his first series, my boy, well, his first it was his specials. Uh, before his first series, he had three one-hour specials. And I yeah, think the second one I happened to cross when it was being repeated or something. Maybe I, you know, it wasn't something that was really in my consciousness. I just happened to see it, and it was amazing. Um, you know, the the Greyhound track. Yeah, thing where, he, where he says, um, you know, this is the winning ticket. That's why yeah. I have this window, um, <laughs> and they gave him money on a on a on a fake ticket. Uh, and in something else around that time, he um, would get, he'd read people's minds. Um, yes. And in, uh, I'm sure there's a routine. I don't think I've just imagined it. I'm sure there's a routine <laughs> where he was telling on the street, telling people their email passwords. Yeah. Um, and I, and I, you know, was like, well, if this is, you know, if he can do what he, what it appears that he can do, then I've got to know how that works because all the you know, all the computer security that we build is pointless if when you leave your office and walk down the street, Darren comes up to you and then, <laughs> you know, talks to you in some kind of clever, uh, convoluted kind of way. And, and after two minutes, you tell him your password and then go about your day as if that didn't matter or you didn't remember or something, you know. And, you know, you know so, so and then all, then all he's got to do is go and log into that computer with that password and he's done, you know. So, um I started researching on the internet, as you do, and yeah. came across a uh, a very young, sort of unofficial, sort of uh, forum that was discussing his work, um, a mixture of magicians and hypnotists, and I quite quickly realised that it was all magic, or most of it was magic. 
Yeah. Uh, and magic was something that I understood because I did magic as a kid. Um, yeah. You know, but I, I even then, you know, as a kid, I kind of got, um, I put magic down at quite an early age because when I realised you you needed pockets full of stuff that were <laughs> set up uh, in order to do anything. Um, <laughs> And and you never did because as as a kid you're not that organised or you know whatever. Then someone would come around the house. And my parents were like, oh, you know, Kev can do magic. Show them a trick. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah, I just need. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've got to go and set my stuff up. Yeah, exactly. No, I don't. I don't know whether it matters to people who watch magic. I don't think it really does. But at the time, obviously, you know, living very much in my own sort of mindset. It was like, well, you know, if you've got to go and spend time setting something up, then clearly what you're doing is putting together the mechanics that later is going to appear to make something magical occur. Right, yeah. Because they've seen you do the set. Well, they don't see you, you know, but they know you've had to go off and do something. I, I just thought, well, doesn't it just remove the magic and it re reduces it to like a, a puzzle whereby they know it's not magic, but they don't know how it's done sort of thing yeah uh, yeah so I, so I put it down but of course Darren's form of magic didn't have any of that he didn't appear to have pockets full of stuff he appeared to really just do his thing and so I got, I got interested again and I started reading lots of books around that but at the same time um, I still wanted to get the hypnosis even if it was only 1% of what he did I need I still wanted to know how that was done and yeah. I wanted to do it because then I could understand how did that fit in in my world, you know, how big of a risk sort of is this? Um, and so I spent uh, 18 months reading about 20 books, uh, that everything that was recommended by people, it was mostly NLP or uh, <laughs> Ericsson, um, yeah. Stephen Heller, you know, various sort of, even, I even got the Stephen Brooks video, um, you'll be so glad to hear. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and and heck, I, I still today meet meet so many, so many aspiring hypnotists that want to be able to talk like Stephen Brooks. Indeed, indeed. Uh, I'm not. It wasn't really that I even wanted to be able to talk like him. It was just there was going to be a demo, a really good demonstration. I'm not sure who it was. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know, without saying it, going any further into that one, we get to a complete tangent, but. Uh, I'm sure Barry Thane has um, has taken that particular video completely to pieces and uh, and destroyed yeah. Stephen over there. But, anyway, but but I couldn't hypnotise. I, I read all these things. I you know I couldn't get it. Um, and then one day, Ant happened to mention he was going to take John Chase's uh, stage hypnosis masterclass. Yeah, which was like a weekend. And um, so I was like, right, I'm there. You know, Ant with all of his knowledge and experience, if he's going to do that course, then it's got to be a good course. Right, did the course, and within an hour and a half, I was hypnotising people, and everything I'd read made sense, but it hadn't really made sense without someone standing in front of me saying, "Well, say it like this, say this, do this," and and, and it worked. You know, yeah. I still I still didn't know how it worked, and and ultimately that's where my my you know my question was over Darren was, well, how does that work? Yeah, yeah. quite. You know, because if you understand how, then you should be able to find many ways of doing it that you know yeah yeah the underpinning rationale yeah um and so, well, what i learned from john chase was it doesn't matter how it works if all you want to do is do it then here's how you can do it and it's it's quite simple yeah um, uh well 
And so, I suppose that so that's kind of I kind of got the bug for it. Once, yeah. once I once I realised the difference between not being able to hypnotise and being able to able to hypnotise was about an hour and a half's worth of tuition. Um, I'm not saying hypnotise brilliantly or you know flexibly and, and and have everything under your belt you would need, but be able to actually hypnotise someone. Yeah. Um, I, I just had to uh, get it out there somehow. Um, Ant actually got on and wrote a book, Reality is Plastic, which yeah. Uh, is awesome. Hundred pages. Yeah. It's basically a brilliant, a, book. a brilliant book. Yeah. Yeah, it's a book I wanted to write. I was trying to write a book like that, and I got lost in the world of the model from which I was talking. And Ant cleverly sidestepped that by saying, "There's lots of different ways it might work. None of them matter. Say these things. Mean it like this. Yeah. Do this. Look for these things to occur. You know, respond in these ways depending on what happens." Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the, the practical application within the book is is splendid. Yes, e exactly. So, um, aeroplane going over, helicopter or something. <laughs> and 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 with that, then, um, mm. because because I mean, the, 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 this is this is a while back now, isn't it? Yeah. Um, um because you you know, I I think you've you've also gone through gone through some development, um, um, and and a lot of change since then. Yeah. Um, um, where where are you at now then, as far as hypnosis is concerned? You know, um, 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 how do you how do you define it, and and how have you arrived at that definition of what what hypnosis is, or or how you explain hypnosis if someone curious is asking you about it? Yeah, um, the way I explain hypnosis if someone's asking me, I mean, I I, I prefix everything by saying uh, I'm not. Yeah, we, we don't know for sure, um, but yeah, the research that I've done and the science that I've looked at suggests this is how it how it fits together. Um, and I basically describe what we now call the automatic imagination model, yeah, um, which is that kind of like people who are hypnotised or people who are good hypnotic subjects have got no better imagination than people that aren't. If you graft quality of imagination or perceived quality of imagination against hypnotic response, you'd, you'd get normal responses for both, and uh, yeah. sort of normal distributions for both. Um, but they wouldn't—they don't really correlate. Yeah. So people with crap imagination could be a really good hypnotic subject, and vice versa. Yeah. Um, we know hypnosis happens in the imagination, in the sense. That, I mean, a lot of these things I'm saying are things that have been stated by. You know, decent um, academics and theorists in the past, but we know it happens in the imagination. If you're seeing Elvis in front of you, clearly the only place that exists is in your mind. Nobody yeah. else is seeing him, unless they're him <laughs> as well, I guess. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, he's not sort of physically there. The light entering your eyes hasn't changed, but in your head, the in your version of reality now includes Elvis still in front of you. Well, you know, if if you took hypnosis out of that kind of equation and just describe the effect people will say you're imagining Elvis so I, I think we can be quite happy that hypnosis does rely on the imagination but it doesn't seem to matter how good your imagination is yeah and um, the other thing is that reality appears to happen in your imagination as well um, simple things like um, only the very center of your eye the fovea can pick up um, color and detail and the rest of the eye picks up low resolution 
and generally very low colour, kind of not quite black and white, but sort of heading down towards those kind of greys. Yeah. Um, and your brain cleverly fills in a beautiful, continual, colour, detailed image of the world that you can, you know, pan and look around. Yeah. Um, I mean, the other thing is uh, that uh, I've come across is that it takes approximately 200 milliseconds for information from your senses, um, you know, touch, sight, sound, etc., to reach the part of your brain that creates awareness. Right. And, and so if that takes a fifth of a second and you're doing something that's quite time critical, like driving or um, throwing a ball or whatever, then you know, the example I normally give is shooting Stephen Fry, obviously. Then <laughs> 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 um, you probably need information that's more up to date than a fifth of a second, which you haven't got. You can't live in the world that's a fifth of a second old, which is what uh, Baroness Greenfield um, claims, because we otherwise everything would clunk and, and and yeah, we wouldn't be able to catch balls, we wouldn't be able to drive cars, etc. What yeah. we must, we predict where the world's going to be, um, but we we predict that outside of our awareness. So the awareness that we experience feels real and now, but really it's a hallucination based on information, the latest information that we've got that we know is slightly old. Right. Yeah. Uh, but we've been doing it all of our lives, and yeah. so we've got very good at it. So when yeah. you look at the table. And you think I'm just hallucinating that table, and then you bang the table, um, and the, and it really feels like the table's there, and you're hitting it. Well, the table really is there, you know, physically. Yeah. Um, and the image coming into your eyes a fifth of a second later will probably be the same as what would what you imagined, because you're so good at imagining this thing. It's when they don't quite match up with reality that's when you notice this effect, like the thirteenth step on the staircase that's not actually there. And you and you expect it, and you crash into the floor, or yeah, know, or whatever. Um, that that's in your reality, in your head. That step was definitely there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and the light coming into your eyes definitely contradicted with it. But you went with the reality in your head. Um, so that so that so you know, it, it appears that reality isn't um, it isn't. Um, what we would like to perceive, what we'd like to normally think of reality. Yeah. Reality appears to be something that is constructed. Yeah. Um, and in fact, someone referred to it as um, remembering the present. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I thought it was quite beautiful, especially when you, you know, bear in mind, remember, all of remembering is construction. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Um, and, and so therefore, and hypnosis therefore relates um, and becomes ways in which people can reconstruct that that perception of reality yes yes we i mean the idiomotor hypothesis suggests that well certainly for 95 percent of people what you imagine your body will respond to as if that's the case as long as you continue to imagine it um not yeah necessarily as uh, um as effectively as if it really was the case i guess but you know, if you imagine that your room is on fire, I imagine you could probably still sit there quite happily <laughs> <laughs> compared to if it really was on fire. Yeah, yeah, but, quite, uh, quite. But you might start feeling warm, you start, might start feeling afraid. But more, you know, more easily, if you imagined your hand was set to the table and continued to imagine that while you're imagining it, you shouldn't be able to lift your hand for 95% of the people. Yeah, yeah. So the moment you stop imagining, you can. And if someone says, yeah, but you really can lift your hand, can't you? Then, of course, you lift your hand and in the moment you stop imagining that because you've got no need to continue to imagine it 
yeah. it's, um, in, in order to achieve lifting your hands, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but it does seem that the that that effect um, means that anything we for, for a lot of us, anything that we imagine could become part of our reality if we continued to imagine it, and if we weren't aware that we were imagining imagining it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that seems to be my, you know, the working definition I have of hypnosis. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I mean, I, 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 I like that. You know, you know that that there are, you know, major components of that that really sing to me. And um, um a couple of those things we're gonna um and we're gonna explore a little bit later on. Um, um one of the, I mean, the, 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 this is um, I, I mean, I mean, I, I, I'm speaking because I have some prior. Um, some prior experience of you and and have spent time discussing things with you in the past um, um so I know that you know that to, to, to have arrived at that perspective and 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 with that you know um, a lot of readings gone on you've you've had a lot of influence in addition to your own you know your, your, your own stance that existed anyway and the kind of um, 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 way in which you, you know you 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 epistemologically respond and and so just tell me then what what are your major influences um, I mean who, who has influenced that and, and and the books and authors for example or, or teachers that have been the most influential upon upon you and your stance with hypnosis well I'd say first of all um, Darren Brown really I mean he was the initial kind of inspiration for having any interest in this field yeah um and and still we refer to all of his work um when we're looking for style uh, points and yeah. ways of connecting with people you know we don't want to copy Darren. we don't want to be um you know a clone or a or a low rent version or a <laughs> you know uh yeah or, or copycat or anything like that yeah we're, we're not we're, you know we're not interested in um you know we are a fan we're massive fans but we're not so much of a fan that we want to dress and look and talk like him. Sure. Um, apart from on weekends, obviously. Yeah. But, <laughs> Plus, but, you know, he's he's pretty much the best at being Darren Brown, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yes, indeed. And um, but what we do take from them is you know, him and his team and and the way it's put together is their approach to production, their approach to conveying information, their approach to entertainment. Um, that's in just feels a world apart from a lot of what is on TV um, nowadays and 12 years ago I think or whenever it was when I first watched when I first saw it yeah so um, yeah it has it's, it's a big effect in terms of how do you make people interested um, some obviously we do a lot of street hypnosis a lot of impromptu hypnosis and we teach it and hang around with people who do that sort of thing and sometimes you see impromptu hypnotists who uh, at the start, when they're looking for a subject, they're very good at engaging an audience and hooking people in and uh, getting everyone to play a game to sort of find who's going to be their subject. But once they've found their subject, their attention kind of turns on to them and they're backed to the audience. And yeah, the, the subject does lots of crazy stuff. And every now and again, they might throw it back to the audience and and, and show off what's happened. But the actual event that the people are there you know wanting to see the actual the, the hypnotizing bits and the suggestion bit they they don't really see a lot of and it's not that they don't want to, you know the hypnotist doesn't want to show it it's just that they are so intently consumed with their subject to make sure it works 
that they've forgotten in that moment that this is now five or ten minutes where the audience doesn't really follow you know, yeah. what's going on. And you sort of think, you really feel for them because you can see yeah. not to be, so it's things like that. How how do you make every part of your performance your act? Especially in hypnosis where I mean with magic, pretty much everything follows a set path. That's it's set sort of timings. You roughly know what you're doing. With hypnosis obviously you're you're kind of gonna respond to the situation, jump around a bit. Yeah. Um, it's how how can you do that and stay present with the audience so that they can sort of you know um, find that uh, interesting and find find the whole of your act entertaining. I guess that it's a very roundabout way sort of way of saying. Um, but that's the sort of that's what we get from Darren is noticing all of the other things that aren't anything to do with hypnosis but are to do with how you present yourself. Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, beyond that, I mean, I did think about this quite hard in terms of influences. I mean, it's really Kirsch, you know, Professor Irving Kirsch, um, Nicholas Spanos, and uh, Zoltan Dien, who I would have to say, yeah, but, you know, currently are the people that that their work I could read over and again and again. Yeah. If I read new stuff that contradicted with what any of those three people had written in the past, I would want to go back to their material. And, Try and work out what's going on. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's. Um, I'm. I, th I think what I love. Um, I, I mean, the, you know, you know. I, I, um, I, I really respond well to, to to them as authors and the contributions they've made. Um, and I'm really pleased that they got mentioned today. Um, because a lot of people, a lot of frontline hypnotherapists that I encounter, you know, I haven't even heard of um, some of those people and some of the people that have made some of the you know the, the the most impressive academic contributions to to this field and to our understanding um and and so so throughout throughout you know in, in particular when we're looking at impromptu hypnosis and performance hypnosis i think you know there are some really impressive applications that you get to witness and um, well, what what are some of the more impressive applications of hypnosis that you've directly witnessed kev well there's kind of um there's kind of two really that um, are kind of you know sufficiently different that it's hard to sort of pick between which sort of thing is the most. But yeah, the first is um, Marcus Marcus uh, Lewis's head hacking tattoo. Yeah, um, you can find this by googling tattoo under hypnosis. It will be the first hit. It has been since the video went up. Um, it's uh, we we went to Las Vegas um, yeah. to uh, attend a course run by Igor Ledochovsky, yeah, um, and uh, to help his students in parts of our knowledge, take them out on the streets, etc. Yeah, and um, while we're in Las Vegas, then uh, Marcus had been trying to convince us all to get head hacking tattoos um, in the run up to this. And we were like going, yeah, well, you know, you 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 get one, Marcus. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm not sure I can. Uh, I'm not I'm not sure ink necessarily is is the way forward at the moment. Um, and by the time we got there, he was like, well, I'm definitely doing it. I'm getting a head hacking tattoo. And we said, well, look, if we can do some hypnosis research and film it, um, you know, we'll we'll pay for it and stick the word research on there as well um, he was quite up for that so we went in and um, you can see on the video the video is obviously stylized and cut in such a way to, to fit it, the whole thing into two and a half minutes but yeah. it was I mean the actual tattoo in itself took an hour um, 
we had two cameras set up. One was a close-up on a trolley, and uh, the other one was me take, shooting the, uh, the sort of like the whole room, the wide shot, yeah. handheld. And I had to be as still as possible, <laughs> so that we could do some high-speed kind of stuff to kind of, you know, kind of compress the time. Um, and everyone else went off. I mean, the, the tattoo places and the nightclub, you know, King Inc. and the Mo in the Mirage Hotel, and they all just went off and got drunk, you know, <laughs> drinking cocktails. And, and I'm sort of stood there, you know, and there's Marcus who's motionless. Um, at one point, he scratched his nose with his other hand, but yeah. other than that, did not move. You know, not a facial expression, not a twitch, nothing. Yeah. Um, the tattooist, who is silent throughout, um, bear in mind in the background is dance music because you know the music from the club bleeds through. Yeah. Um, tattooing away, you know, and I've I've never been I've never seen someone get tattooed before, and and I don't I don't want to interrupt him. I don't want to, you know, make his life any more, you know, tricky. Yeah. I, I don't, you know, I, I don't know how he's going to respond to someone kind of going, oh, what are you doing now? And what does that, you know, how does that work? You know, whatever. So. I, I, I sort of left him to be the, you know, if he wanted to start a conversation, it's his room, he'll start talking. And I, he didn't, so <laughs> but fair enough, this is how professionals work, you know. So I, I stood there silent and pretty much motionless myself. Yeah. And then at the end, you know, um, I, I, you know I woke him up because um, Ant, Ant was still lost somewhere in the nightclub. <laughs> uh, we were running out of tape. We, we didn't have, you know, we, he, he and did appear ten seconds later, but we, we just had to get on. And yeah. uh, you know, Marcus's reaction was, well, you see it on the video, it's it's phenomenal. You know, he has not felt or noticed that tattoo being done. And I mean, it's no, it's it, it's not just. Um, I mean, it's a full-on tattoo, isn't it? With thick, thick yeah. letters. Um, I, I mean, it's it's it looks wonderful. Yeah, four four inches by about two inches, perhaps. Yeah, I mean it's a full yeah. on one, and yeah, um, um, you know, I, I I've seen Marcus's tattoo, and I've seen the video clip before. Um, um, yeah, brilliant. So that was just crazy. I mean, obviously talking to the tattooist afterwards, you know, we sort of, you know, we, yeah, obviously we would love to have got a interview and whatever, but I say tapes and things like that. Yeah, maybe we didn't, but um, so I said, what is it? He said it was the weirdest experience of his life. Um, two reasons. <laughs> Firstly, he's never done it silent before. <laughs> oh, really? No. It's, um, yeah, normally he sits there talking to the person he's tattooing. Yeah. You know, asking them about it and why they've chosen this and what do they do for a living and, and you know, whatever else. And of course, this the person he's tattooing is, is hypnotized out of it. You know, so he's not um, sort of talking. And then the second, obviously, part of that was that because we're filming, he, he wasn't sure whether. You know that'd be a problem. So he, it's like, oh god, because I've done with the conversation personally. You know, but never. Mind. <laughs> uh, but the second thing, yeah, the reason why it's the weirdest thing was that Marcus didn't bleed throughout the whole of that tattoo. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're con he's constantly wiping away ink, and he says normally you're wiping away a mixture of ink and blood, and the, the ink was a very dark sort of black or dark blue or whatever that's yeah. going in. Yeah. Um, so normally you get a mixture of that and, and blood and you can and it, it's quite clear on both on the cloth and down the arm and everything else not a sing, not no blood at all as far as he was concerned i mean i didn't see any during that, that hour and he says and that never happens uh, now the suggestion was just forget about this arm you can forget about this arm no 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 no, no suggestion specifically about the bleeding no not at all it was it was 
you know, it was it was the simplest. You know, maybe Ant wow. gave sort of twenty, thirty seconds, but of of suggestions. But it was mostly forget about the arm. You can forget about this arm. Um, you know, you could you know, Ant would have said you can go off into a fantasy. You can relive a past wonderful experience. You know, you can continue to relive that at whatever speed you like for as long as you want. You know, while this just continues. Forget, you know, forget about the arm, and that would be that was practically it. And there, there wasn't a really any sort of process. I mean, we know Marcus is a great subject. Yeah. Not so much now. He, you know, has spent many, many years trying to <laughs> <laughs> understanding how it might be working. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Now control over whether you know he's more he's a better self hypnosis subject now. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Um. I. I, I... I find that fascinating. Absolutely, find that fascinating. Um, um, just because of where we're where we are with time, Kev. Um, yeah. um, where, where can people go to learn more about about your work and your approach to hypnosis and so on? Well, the website is www.headhacking.com. So head, as in H E A D, hacking, as in H A C K I N G, headhacking.com. Um, yeah, it's a great. Yes, it's, uh, it, yeah, and... it's, it's a great site. <laughs> it is a great site. But yeah, um, there's lots of stuff on there, blogs and you know, reading and uh, you know, suggestions for the for places to look and things like that. So, brilliant, brilliant. Um, we'll be right back with Kev um, later on, um, uh, and uh, uh, we're going to be having a discussion and a debate. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll be uh, back talking to Kev in a short while. For now, thanks ever so much, Kev Sheldrake. Cheers. There'll be more from Kev shortly. Now, let's have a look at this week's hypnosis in the news. The first story that I'm posting about, that I'm talking about, um, is, in a, is in a provincial newspaper, provincial uh, uh, echo newspaper that covers the area of South End here in the UK. Um, and the title of the article is Hypnotherapist Suing Hospital Over Car Park Fall. Um, um, and it goes on to tell of a former nurse who is suing Southend Hospital for damages of up to £25,000, says the article, amid claims that she fractured her shoulder after tripping over a broken parking barrier. Da -da 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 -da, and the story goes on. Yet for some strange reason, just because the woman is a hypnotherapist, they put this as their title and this is somehow newsworthy. You know, very rarely do you read accountant suing hospital over car park fall or bricklayer suing hospital over car park fall gardener dinner lady suing hospital over car park fall you know i just don't get it um, um as to why media representations of hypnosis and hypnotherapy you know are are, are so are so fascinated um, um or, or rather are so seemingly fascinating that they feel the need to put that in there so it's not really anything to do with hypnosis or hypnotherapy but somehow makes uh, makes makes headlines um, likewise the other uh, story I wanted to mention today um, another story is um, is entitled 
Hypnotist Bandit Wanted for Four Bank Robberies. Now, when I first saw the title, I thought, ah, oh, right, this could be interesting, this could be intriguing. Perhaps this is another one of those stories where uh, claims are being made. Like, like last year, there was a, a, a guy in Russia that was apparently using hypnotic techniques in his bank robberies. And I thought this might be the same. I whisked off there to have a look. But once again, um, and the hypnotist bandit, as he is dubbed, uh, is wanted for robbing four banks in Pasadena um, and the South Bay areas in the US uh, over recent months. Um, um, but again, nothing to do with hypno hypnosis, uh, nothing to do with hypnotists either. Um, um, he's been nicknamed and dubbed the hypnotist bandit simply because of the descriptions made by victim tellers that he stared at them and continued to make eye contact during the robberies. So therefore is deemed to be hypnotic. Um, fair enough, I suppose, in some respects and a bit silly in other respects. Now then, so on to some news where there is actually some news with regards to hypnosis and, and an insightful um, article entitled, Is Hypnobirthing a Load of Old Twaddle or Will Evidence Show It Works? Um, and Maggie Howell, a lady that, uh, that I've met on a few occasions, um, um, offers an expert opinion with regards to this. Um, there are currently some eagerly awaited results with regards to the first major UK trial into the efficacy of hypnobirthing that are due out. And um, 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 so, so what Maggie's done is she's put an article together and uh, compiled a number of reports and supporting statistics with regards to that. I know with regards to my own um, PhD study, which, which primarily is looking at self-hypnosis, um, um, the, the, the evidence base with self-hypnosis as a, as a tool for, 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 for advancing hypnobirthing is, is, tends to be quite mixed. Um, um, a lot of the, the studies are short on samples. A lot of the studies are, are almost like pilot studies and preliminary studies. So it's nice to see that um, Maggie's included some other statistics and some good interpretation of the research and the studies um, that I think anybody interested in this field will find to be interesting reading. And, you know, for me, refreshing that there's something regarding hypnosis in the news that actually is about actual hypnosis and how many more times could I squeeze the word actual into that sentence now then um, um, next up uh, and links to all of those stories are listed in this week's podcast entry um, like I said www.hypnosis-weekly.com next up this week's discussion um, between myself and Kev Sheldrake. This week we're discussing suggestibility, what it means, how to improve it, and again, all the numbers, uh, a number of reference points and links added to this episode's entry. Um, now, it, it is impossible to be completely exhaustive on a subject that has entire books written about it. Um, um, if anybody really wants to get into um, suggestibility, I, I, I thoroughly recommend a book by Heap, Brown and Oakley entitled The Highly Hypnotizable Person. Um, theoretical and experimental clinical issues as far as that's concerned. I'm um, um, really, really you know, insightful, uh, highly evidence-based. Um, now, like I said, 
it's difficult with with books like that written about the subject you know it's um, difficult to be exhaustive on such a subject during a relatively short podcast i think we covered some really important stuff and i hope you'll find it thoroughly engaging fascinating anyway i'll cut to the quick here is that discussion Okay, we're back now with uh, Kev Sheldrake. Um, um, so many topics and so many things um, related to our field that, that, that I have spoken to Kev about before and that um, I, I could quite easily discuss with him. And, um, and perhaps we'll, we'll do what we can to get him back on a, on a future episode as well to come and discuss another subject. Today, um, we're gonna have a little bit of a discussion about suggestibility. Um, with with my own particular stance um, and adhering to more of a kind of social cognitive perspective and conceptualization of what hypnosis actually is, something like suggestibility um, tends to require development of skills, perhaps, rather than just being set in stone. Um, um, I know there are schools out there that believe, you know, people have an inherent suggestibility and certainly, you know, we'll, we'll have a look at certain traits and explanations as far as traits are concerned. Um, but in general terms, um, and for me as a, as a therapist as well, the association between hypnotic suggestibility and perhaps treatment outcomes is is mediated by by some some pretty diverse factors including things like positive motivation um beliefs and certain expectancies about hypnosis so for me um the way in which people are have their suggestibility heightened tends to come from correct psychoeducation um, I know that Irving Kirsch, for example, talks about framing, um, I'm, I'm not necessarily using that term, but, but titling the process as hypnosis and definitely makes a differentiation between people responding to suggestions outside of the hypnosis context and um, um, proper um, suggestibility as far as he's concerned is whereby the, the, the situation is labelled as hypnosis and framed as hypnosis and, and people are responding to imaginative suggestions and as far as he's concerned suggestions are instructions to, to, to the imagination, imaginative um, um, suggestions. Um, Kev, what are, your, what are your initial thoughts and perspectives as far as um, suggestibility is suggestibility is concerned and, and, and your own kind of approach? Um, well, yes. I mean, and, and in fact, Kirsch is the, or Kirsch's material that we read is it, it, certainly the place where that's had the biggest effect on how we talk about these things and what we think these things mean. The first thing, uh, and, and I, I almost butted in uh, when you were giving your introduction. Is, yeah. Um, Kirsch, I think, was the first person to suggest or uh, suggested uh, to recommend that um, we use the phrase responsiveness to suggestion yeah. as opposed to suggestibility because yeah. of the history and um, the myth that may well be associated with this this term suggestibility. Absolutely. Uh, whereas response to suggestion is pretty clear. You give a suggestion, measure the response. Um, but with suggestibility, what does that yeah, it often gets confused with hypnotizability and things like that as well. Yes, and outside of hypnosis, it gets confused with um, the ability to persuade someone, the ability to be persuaded, perhaps, yeah. or the ability to be conned, or, 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 or whatever else. And they aren't necessarily 
related to imaginative response, responsive imaginative suggestions or, or whatever. So that's that's kind of the first. I mean, he, he refers to placebos as being suggestion, really. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the other things that I mentioned, persuasion, cons and, and the likes, are all different types of suggestion, but not yeah. hypnotic. No, you would say no, absolutely, and and in fact, in a lot of his research, um, where he's looked at responsiveness to suggestion, um, um, he's he's suggested that um, 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 when you uh, that such that suggestions that are administered in a hypnotic concept context, i.e., procedures that we can correctly label as hypnosis, are are measured against. Um, imaginative suggestions administered in non-hypnotic situations for example so that we can truly uh, you know extrapolate the, the the influence or the you know the the, the 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 response and the results of of hypnosis yeah indeed um you you might have discussed this before on your on your podcast i'm sure you have in your in your blog um just the very idea that for many years uh, academics were measuring say suggestibility as they were calling it or um, hypnotizability and they hadn't really or, or not many academics had actually given suggestions to people who hadn't been hypnotized to see what the baseline was yeah just i mean as a concept that's just crazy that the myth of the hypnotic state or the hypnotic process was so built in that they hadn't even stepped outside it to sort of find out well how do people respond when you're not hypnotizing them yeah, um, and and as as you say, there's a distinction between just giving suggestions outside of the context and creating the context and giving the suggestions, but not actually hypnotising the person. Absolutely, and, and uh, I mean, if we look at um, um, Barber, T Ted Barber's work in the 1960s showed that you know pretty much everything that can be um, responded to in hypnosis can also be responded to. Um, without hypnosis, albeit yeah. that hypnosis sometimes and quite often magnifies and amplifies responses. Um, and, and it makes for some interesting discussion with me when people are talking about depth, for example. Ah, you know, I didn't get them deep enough, so therefore they weren't responding well enough, um, which I think is probably a bit of a red herring. Um, yeah. um, if you think that actually these people could respond without hypnosis at all they could respond just to the suggestions um, um it's probably less to do with depth whatever that means and that's probably a discussion for another day and more to do with you know their understanding or their as i said earlier their expectancy their beliefs and yeah, exactly. and, and, and so on um, yeah, exactly. i mean you, you sort of the oh no go on you no no i mean i, I was going to say um in a previous edition I was um, I'm discussing state and trait theory with Jürgen Rasmussen. And one of the things we, we very briefly touched upon um, was this idea of trait theory. So that is that, you, you know, some people, some people potentially have predisposition to be more responsive to suggestions than others. Um, and, and, and I think the way in which I, I was attempting to illustrate it was that, you know, I, I had a friend um, and him and I, one of my closest friends to date, um, I'm, I was always quite sporty. He was always an incredibly good musician. 
Now, this idea of if you practice something for 10,000 hours, you become a genius at it or whatever. Um, um, him and I could both have sat down with guitars and practiced for 10,000 hours. And I suspect that he would still be a lot better than I was. Um, 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 and, and potentially that's to do with the kind of people we were and certain traits. I would still be a lot better than when I started, but perhaps not as good as him. Likewise, you know, if we both kick the ball around for 10,000 hours, I suspect that I may have been a better footballer than him. We both would be better than when we started. And um, um, I suppose there is a potentially a case to, as far as trait theory is concerned and responsiveness to suggestions. Um, and some of, the, um, some of the discussions about this revolve around um, a capacity for absorption for example, or fantasy proneness. Um, have you found have you found in your in your own work or your own experiences any any of those kind of trait theories working or responding or being the case or not? Well, I I can only really appeal to the evidence because yeah, you know, whatever limited experiences uh, I have, absolutely, you, you know certainly wouldn't be formally recorded even if no quite even if i'd had enough you know um but um i think it's the kirsch and silver paper where they um looked at traits um i could dig out the reference but when they when they looked when when kirsch and his um colleagues looked at uh, traits and compared them with hypnotic responsiveness or responsivity to suggestion um they found um, if I'm if I remember this correctly, that yeah. absorption and fantasy proneness um, together combined equated for two percent of the variance in hypnotic responsiveness. Right. Yeah. to suggestion. So, I mean, obviously, it depends on how you measure how absorbed a person, you know, or how prone to absorption someone might be, yeah, um, and whether the whether those measurements um, equate to the kind of absorption that. A hypnotist might suggest you need for hypnosis. You know, there's obviously debate about whether, but typically the way that absorption was being measured and the way uh, fantasy proneness was being measured, they didn't seem to correlate with those no. that were good at responding. And, and I know that there's been a lot of people have looked at um, um, some sort of classic, um, um, classic personality categories that 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 would sort of encapsulate fantasy proneness and capacity for absorption so on and and found found you know uh, certainly not, not statistically impressive correlation um, um hasn't yeah, been I, I think i think it's mostly a red herring i mean the one yeah. thing you said earlier on um was that kirsch kind of respond yeah, refers to hypnotic suggestions as being instructions to the imagination yeah uh, which is you know exactly the way that we talk about it. I mean, it, 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 it we've been massively influenced by Kirsch in that respect. But what's key in there is the instruction element. Um, in the in the sense that I mean, Spanos did an experiment where they tested they they um, took suggestions and they split them so that you would have one set of suggestions where, um, or, or the suggestion set rather, um, didn't have any instructions. Yeah, just had sort of your arm is light, your arm is rising type suggestions. Yeah. Then the other group had instructions: lift your arm. Being an example. Yeah. Um, 
what they found was that while everyone can respond to instructions, only 50% of people respond to suggestions, which is shocking for anyone who's a hypnotist. Yeah. The moment you say only half of the people will ever respond to your suggestions, you go, you sort of, A, you're thinking, Christ, <laughs> that's terrible for business. Yeah. Or, or for my abilities. But secondly, that doesn't really match up with my experience. And no. it does because if you, certainly the Curse of Silver paper had a, uh, a table where they looked at how many people responded to each of the suggestions on the standard Stanford Hypnotic Susceptibility Scale, Form C. Yeah. And you'd find that um, something like 75%, I think it was, could do um, arm, you know, hands moving apart, arms moving apart. And you're like, well, if 75% of people can do that, but only 50% respond to the suggestion, what's going on? Yeah. Well, if you look at the suggestion, in inverted commas, that's given in the Stanford scale, it's a mixture of suggestions and instructions to imagine. Yeah. And, and what, what they're asking you to imagine might be um, the, the effect occurring, the goal of the suggestion, so imagining your arm lifting. Um, it might be imagining goal-directed fantasies, or, or what's often referred to as means imagery. Which exactly, would, yeah. Yeah, you know, to imagine something that if that was true, it would cause the effect. So balloons full of helium tied to the hand. And if you can imagine that, and that becomes real to you, then obviously your hand would have to lift. If, if assuming there's enough helium, and but I've, I've often wondered that. You know, how much helium do you really need to <laughs> levitate an arm? Um, yeah, physically, not with. Yeah. How how big would that balloon need to be, sort of thing? But yeah. Um, yeah maybe I'll film it one day for a laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but so so in in in, a, in, a, in the suggestions that you find in the hypnotic scales where they're measuring responsiveness to suggestion, they're mixtures of instructions and to the imagination and actual suggestions. So the measurements that we have aren't strictly measurements for responding response to suggestion. They're for responding to this hybrid of suggestions and imaginative instructions. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and and th that's interesting. I, I know that within the Carlton Skills Training Program, for example, one of the suggestions given for, for arm levitation is to imagine your arm is is hollow and filled with um, um and filled with uh, uh, helium and and to imagine it floating up and raising up and and um almost to 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 consciously do the response and then convince yourself that it happened by itself yes. um, um which is which is quite an interesting thing and it was it was a bit of a bone of contention of um of jurgens for example you know is that true responding and for me for me the fact that you know i follow and adhere to a social cognitive perspective then then we can't omit the social the social part of that which is adopting the role of hypnotized subject so um I, I, you know as far as i'm concerned that that's okay <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. but that is made okay and, and also later work again um kirsch uh, again um was it kirsch and comey perhaps um they looked at um they, they used the curs to test the carp skills training package yeah and the curves, as opposed, so the Stanford hypnotic scale only really measures objective response. Yeah. Did it happen or didn't it happen? Yeah. Which is the contention because if you're saying to people, make it happen, and then convince yourself it was hypnotic, then you know, 
surely it should happen more times than not. Yeah. Whereas curves, they measure on, a, on multiple axes. So it's not only the objective effect, but it's also the subjective feeling of, you know, did it did it feel like it was lifting? Um, the, uh, so the, the, what's the one? How real did it feel? Um, uh, there's a, how involved did they feel? Yeah. How much effort was involved? Yeah. And, and those kind of figures from those experiments kind of, um, for me at least, take away a lot of that contention because it shows that, no, the, the subject really did believe it was occurring. It, it, it's, the results are um, effectively similar to that of a good hypnotic subject. Yeah. As yeah. Trained one. Yeah, I wish I'd have had that response. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I'd have had that response up my sleeve last week. Um, yeah, um, yeah, I mean, the, 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 absolutely. The thing um, um, that I, I, I also, one of the things that's been a driving force of mine, and, and, and I tend to find myself, um, a, a lot of people dispute this, is that, you know, in line with the Carlton Skills Programme, and, and not just that, but certainly, um, um, you know, when it's been replicated, the, the fact that responsiveness to suggestions can be advanced with practice and with skill development and with, um, you know, a, as self-efficacy is developed, which, you know, for me as, a, as, as someone with, with a big investment, um, you know, emotionally and intellectually in the field of self-hypnosis becomes really important. And as a therapist becomes really important because, you know, if, if responsiveness to suggestions can be advanced with practice and then we get our clients practicing in between sessions then you know our therapy sessions are going to be are, are going to be better yeah um, um in such a wide range um, um but, but exactly i mean I, I see it's quite fundamental if if the work of spanos and the follow-on work is correct then the 50 percent that don't respond to pure suggestions simply don't know what to do in those or are doing the wrong things in, yeah. in those moments in their head whether they feel like they're aware of doing those things or not um or whether they feel it's consciously directed or not doesn't really matter the fact is that they're not doing the things that good subjects you know the other 50 percent sort of do naturally yeah and um if you want to get them to respond then <laughs> some form of training or some form of um changing what they're doing in their in their mind or what which is, which is going to come down to their expectation their, yeah, their, their assumptions about what hypnosis is and their role yeah. within it their motivation yeah. absolutely um, um and, and that, that that leads me on quite nicely to, to this i mean a, a real hero of mine is um emil Kue, um and, and especially with my work with with self-hypnosis and and wanting people that learn self-hypnosis to become more responsive um, one of the things that Emil Kue stressed and probably doesn't doesn't really get covered as much today is what he referred to as the effort error, and that is whereby um, you know people people when delivering suggestions to themselves in particular, um, but likewise you know if responding to hetero hypnosis suggestions um, have have an effort um, or or an anxiety about it or towards it um, tends to impede the responsiveness to that suggestion and tends to get in the way a little bit. So um, certainly, um, 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 certainly I would, uh, you know, I, I tend to recommend that, you know, people be self-assured and, and, 
and, and gentle with the way and, and make things their reality as opposed to kind of attempting to will it to occur, you know, the, the, the response to the suggestion. And again, you know, it brings me right back to the, the social cognitive perspective about heightened suggestibility where we're looking at developing and investing and fostering belief and correct expectancy and understanding and developing a skill mm. um and, and for me that that's at the heart of being responsive to to suggestions well yes i mean i, I can imagine a conversation between someone who naturally does the right thing in response to suggestions and someone who doesn't and if they're, and they're both discussing self-hypnosis the person who's good you know, who, who naturally does the right things is saying yeah just you know, just to let it, let yourself go, you know, just, just, just do it. Just, you know, close your eyes and go into a trance because to them, all of those phrases mean do this particular thing yeah. for that effect to occur, which they, which they know is going to occur. They expect that to happen. Exactly. But the person that's listening who naturally doesn't do the right and, and typically the wrong things might be waiting for something to occur, you know, analyzing, um, any response in in minutiae to see and then and trying to understand if, if if that's a response that is somehow conscious or is that just a twitch or or is that some sort of response to the suggestion and um well you know and and, and essentially you know they might be wanting it and might be expecting it but uh, they're waiting for it instead of imagining it yeah. occurring perhaps yeah. it, that might be the distinction but whatever it is they're doing the they're doing the wrong things and so the more, the, the more the person says to them, no, just just do it. The the more they will it to occur, but they're willing, you know, in, in entirely the wrong direction, perhaps. Yeah. You know, what they're doing more of is more of the wrong thing. And what they need that that conversation needs is the person who's good at it to be able to say, well, in my head, what I do is this, and the other person goes, oh, I see, and then they <laughs> yeah. do that, and they become hypnotized. You know. And, and how does this? I mean, I, I've drawn some parallels in the past um, between some some elements of the Carlton Skills Training Program and your own AI model, for example. Yeah. Um, um, but but how does how does some of what we've discussed with regards to responsiveness to suggestions, um, um, how does that fit and sit in with the, the AI model? Well, we what, so one of the things we noticed was this distinction between in, instructions and suggestions the yeah, idea is yeah. that a suggestion needs to be interpreted before the implicit instruction within it can be carried out so with i mean ai the, the, ai can be a model or you know is, is a model but the original way we were kind of applying it was literally through giving instructions to imagine and the way i generally phrase them and the way which is the way we did it the first time when me and anthony had our little crazy night where you know he hallucinated and i had amnesia you had some eureka moments yeah exactly yeah. um we didn't know what we were doing we didn't know whether ant would be able to do these things or not all we were really doing was playing with his imagination because based on those things i was saying before about what should be true theoretically if he imagined and continued to imagine something what he would be seeing and experiencing would be something like if he had been hypnotized and given those suggestions even though he knew he would be doing it, it'd be somewhere like that, and that's what we were kind of playing with. But um, um, what the way I was, because I didn't know, because well, yeah, obviously 
you know, none of us knew. Maybe none of us do know. But I didn't. I didn't know whether this, you know, these concepts were right or not. Um, I wasn't saying do this. You know, imagine this now. Now imagine this. Now imagine this. I was like, I was saying, can you imagine this? And then he'd kind of go, mm, yeah, I can kind of imagine that. And like, What's it like? You know what? You know, do you need to imagine something else? You know, is this? You know, and and kind of it was a, more of a conversation, a, co- a collaborative thing, where I was trying to get him to imagine the right things for, for something to occur. Yeah. That's now become certainly the standard way that I use AI. Um, I asked the question, you know, can you imagine this? Yeah. And if you can, can you imagine it like this? And, and if you can do that, um, can you imagine it like that and with this other, also, uh, and also imagine this other thing? Yeah. And if they do that, and if they say yes, then the effect instantly has occurred. Yeah. Typically. That's when they can't remember their name or lift their hands or they start dancing like Beyonce, whatever. <laughs> but it's um, so so it's a case of I'm I'm giving the instructions, but I'm giving them in the through me asking if if they can do it because obviously I don't know if they if, if if they can or not. Yeah. And and part of the reason might be because what I'm asking they're interpreting in a different way, or it might be because they're one of the five percent that don't respond to the new hypothesis. It might be that they simply can't comprehend of any world in which they you know, this could possibly be the case yeah you know and i've had that you know you, you get so far up the scale they can they can do physical stuff they can do amnesia um you try and get them to hallucinate and they're like you know and it fails and you know in the past we would you'd fail and then you'd fall back to something they can do get another success wrap up move on to somebody else whatever and never ask them why. Why didn't it work? Yeah. With AI, because the whole thing is questions and the whole thing is collaborative, and it's about them using their mind to achieve something, and, and me trying to give them the prompts to see, you know, to the instructions for what they need to do. Um, you feel, you know, it's fine to ask them. Well, what happened? It's like I just can't imagine Elvis being in this room. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just yeah. ridiculous. Of course, he couldn't be here, sort of thing. I see. Right. Could you imagine a blue box? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Could imagine a blue box. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and now you're back in the game. And that's so that's another thing that AI kind of given us is by by getting getting out of the frame of giving suggestions and hoping they interpret them correctly and feeling uh, like we've got nowhere to go if they don't know how to interpret suggestions with AI because we're asking them to do stuff. And we can ask them about their experience of doing it, or you know what what's wrong with why it's not working. And um, you know, I won't go into all the details, but there's a number of questions you can ask uh, around yes. this to get some kind of insight. And and we, you know, we don't necessarily even need to believe their insight. It's it's literally it gives you a hook upon which they can now imagine um, you know something else, perhaps. Quite. That that's kind of led us into a situation where we've got so much more flexibility. You know the the um, the idea of you know getting loads of feedback and you know, everything's feedback and not failure. Yeah. So with AI, it kind of is a lot more like that because every time something fails, you do get to ask a question and you do get to have another go. Yeah. And in a lot of cases, you'll then I, I find I will I then succeed. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, for for people that um, um for people that that are listening that might be. 
um, unfamiliar with the AI model. Um, um, people can also go and find more information about that at headhacking.com. That's right. And also, uh, if you go to whatsonmybrain.com and... Oh, yeah, Josh Houghton's blog. Josh Houghton's blog and search for head hacking, then I've got a three-part article on that website where you can read about um, popular models of or contemporary models of hypnosis kind of used in industry, kind of academic models of hypnosis as uh, from the last sort of say 30, 40 years. And then uh, the third part is our automatic imagination model talking about how we think it fits together and yeah. what it means. And if you enjoy that, then, you know, we've got a CD where you can listen to you know, 80 minutes of me and Ant discussing this. Yeah. Well, I'll put a link. Um, I'll put a link under the resources section for this for this episode um, to those uh, to those articles because they're yeah. they're, they're exceptional uh, reading. They really are. Um, um, Kev, we're, we're we're out of time. Um, there's so much more I want to ask you, and hopefully, we'll manage to cajole you into coming back for a future episode. Um, yeah. um, um, heartiest thanks. Um, um, are you working on anything in particular right now? Projects that you're looking forward to? Um, well, yeah, I mean, the long-awaited Change Phenomena 2013 DVD set and download set is, um, is imminent. Um, Great. I mean, it's, it's, we, we had a number of issues um, about getting the sound processed and uh, various other bits put together, but the final pieces are falling into place, so hopefully that will be out very soon. And I've started looking at um, Change Phenomena 2014, um, which features some of my favourite um, uh, change phenomena moments. Yeah, um, you know, for, for anybody, um, for anybody out there listening, um, you know, go and have a look at some of the some of the trailers on YouTube with regards to change phenomena. Um, um, what, one of the things I love about it, one of the things I was discussing, um, um, I, I was interviewed with uh, James Tripp. Um, um, a, a few weeks ago, and, and I was saying to him when him and I were chatting, um, what what I, what I love about change phenomena is um, that you know there's such diversity, so many different approaches. There are people that I've made that I would consider to now be lifelong friends, um, yeah. lifelong friends. Um, um, yet I vehemently disagree with with you know their approach to to the field or things like that. <laughs> uh, but but the way that you guys manage to to set that tone is is something you know I, I talk about it and I've repeated this this time and time again and I wish it was um, something that was adopted by by so many more people involved in the hypnosis field um, um you know it's a real yeah. credit to you and Ant. I, I just we, we've always thought there's you know every, everyone's got so much I mean it's cliches and everyone's got something to offer you know you know you're this field you know beyond many other fields it suffers from it's very hard to be right yeah <laughs> about anything you say because yeah yeah so many people are desperate to be so yeah but, and, and possibly that's because in a field that you know where the, the facts are a bit sketchy maybe they need some hook to hang stuff on maybe they need yeah. some, some you know, baseline they can they can say that's how it works and that's what i'm going to stick to whereas yeah me and anthony's approach has generally been we don't know how it works and we don't necessarily care and so falling into some kind of idea of maybe finding out how it works possibly um you know it mean 
we approach it from a completely different angle. You know, we're, we're yeah. not trying to come up with something and impress it upon the world. It's we want people, to, we want all of us to learn more and yeah. be better. And I just think the easiest way to do that is if we get more people together talking. I mean, yeah. it, it, when we looked at conferences before we started Change Phenomena, I mean, it's based on the Blackpool Magic International Convention that happens every February, yeah. where there's about 5,000 magicians turn up and there's hundreds of magic dealers selling stuff and there's hundreds of lectures you can go to and things like that. And, and every time we went, we would leave on the Sunday going, We've got to do this for hypnosis, you know, not one that is a school and a school of thought that prevails, not one that's um, essentially just a lot a big stage show or something to do with, you know, like a hypno meetup where people go out and do stuff. So something that is people with actual knowledge imparting that knowledge to an audience that might be sceptical of it, yeah. but enjoy the situation and enjoy the explore, exploration. Yeah, um, and I think that's more likely to open minds to the idea that, you know, a we don't know everything, and what we know today might, you know, be contradicted tomorrow. Um, but yeah, also absolutely. Everyone has got something to offer. Yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, some of the I, I get, you know, my, the best feedback we ever receive at Headhacking comes from Change Phenomena on the day, and it's just uh, without wanting to be able to quote anybody in particular, but. The, the responses are so diverse. Yeah. You know, we, we might think of ahead of time, oh, you know, this person's going to be the star that everyone's going to be talking about. And it's like, no, wrong again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, um, Kev Sheldrake, thank you ever so much for being with us today. Um, um, once again, anybody interested, go to headhacking.com, read a lot more about Kev and Anthony's work. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. Um, in future episodes, I'll be speaking to um, Kev's headhacking co-founder, Anthony Jackwin, too. So uh, a little bit more something to keep you tuned, hopefully. Now then, our hypnosis fact of the week. In keeping with this week's discussion on suggestibility, how about I tell you about the earliest study to have compared the effects of waking suggestion with hypnotic suggestion, eh? Yeah, I can see you hypnosis geeks, your ears pricking up even further there. Now, some of you may automatically think that it was Ted Barber, Theodore Barber, who did the first study examining and comparing waking suggestion and hypnotic suggestion, perhaps due to his considerable and expansive studies on this subject matter back in the 1960s. But, um, but this subject matter was in fact studied long before him. Now, you, you real hypnosis eggheads out there could even be forgiven for thinking that it was Clark Hull, because he did indeed conduct some of the earliest rigorous studies into achieving hypnotic phenomena using suggestion, motivation, expectation, without hypnosis, a formalised structured hypnosis. Back in the 1920s and 1930s, Clark Hull was doing that. However, it's even sooner, even earlier than that. The first study of this kind was actually conducted in 1884 by the pioneer Richet, spelled R-I-C-H-E-T. His study entitled De la Suggestion Sans Hypnotisme featured in Comte Rendu de la Société de Biologie back in 1884. And, and, and I'm hoping 
that that someone's going to email me and just say, Adam, I really quite enjoyed your French accent while you were giving us that study title. Now, this study it was one of the uh, it was one study representing his interest, uh, uh, Richet's interest in the phenomenon of suggestion without hypnosis. One of the methods that he devised consisted of inviting the subject to close his hand on some commonplace object, such as a knife or a coin, and then affirming that he would not be able to open it. And this was done with hypnotized subjects, uh, magnetized subjects, and those in the waking state. Uh, I mean, I put magnetized and waking state in inverted commas um, and the responses were compared across all of them. Um, a wider range of phenomena was subsequently explored in an 1888 study comparing waking suggestion with hypnotic suggestion. That was conducted by Wingfield, which was the second study of its kind. Um, I, I, I love that stuff. If you have a hypnosis factoid that you'd like to share, do send it in to me and it may well feature here. There may even be prizes for good ones. Whoopie doo. In our next edition, I'll be welcoming Mr. Hypnosis Without Trance, James Tripp, and we'll be talking about art versus science in the field of hypnosis. Fairly contentious subject at times. Um, and of course, I, I have a real, what I consider to be a stellar lineup of guests in future weeks. We'll be discussing, debating, celebrating, and above all, remaining friends. And to repeat, all the references made in the discussions along with related links are posted at each episode on the Hypnosis Weekly website, www.hypnosis-weekly.com. That's hypnosisweekly with a hyphen in the middle, .com. I absolutely welcome your thoughts, comments, suggestions and questions. So please do message me or add them on the Hypnosis Weekly website and I'll make sure that they are addressed, answered and explored accordingly. My thanks again go to Kev Sheldrake. Thanks to you for tuning in. My name is Adam Eason. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, goodbye for now. Mm -hmm.